Welcome to the Unstoppable Coach Podcast. I'm Millette Jones, and every weekday I chat with today's most successful coaches, and we learn their secrets to building a thriving coaching business. Are you ready to be unstoppable? Let's go. Welcome to the Unstoppable Coach Podcast, where inspiration and action come together. Today, I'm speaking with Bobby Klink. Bobby is an intellectual property attorney, but he's not your typical lawyer. Sure, he went to Harvard Law School and worked at some of the most prestigious law firms in the country, but if you look at the big whiteboard in his office, you're not going to see very much about the law. His whiteboard is filled with tasks related to platform building, inbound marketing, and sales funnels. Bobby is a full-fledged online entrepreneur whose area of expertise is the law. Bobby, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited to talk with you today. Well, I'd like to get started with just learning a little bit more about you, maybe what you like to do when you're not working and, and kind of what got you into the law in the first place. Okay, great. Um, well, so I'm originally from deep south Texas, about five miles from the Mexican border, where I was born and raised by uh, a father who owned a chain of drug stores and a, a mother who was a math teacher. Um, and I pretty early decided, or I thought I decided I wanted to be a lawyer. And I kind of decided that when I got involved in public speaking events, first through debate, but then other things in high school that really got me excited about that area, about the idea of, um, trying to have something in my life that involved public speaking, et cetera. And I was a bit short-sighted at the time, thought, Hey, law, that's the only thing there. I'd, <laughs> I'd seen Perry Mason. I'd seen these other, um, you know, types of shows where I thought that was what being a lawyer was. Um, but I also took some classes, even starting in high school, where we focused on issues about the law and the Constitution, and, and I found that interesting. So I followed that up. I've got to be honest, when I went to law school, intellectual property law was the furthest thing from my mind. I actually thought I wanted to be maybe a, a public interest lawyer on constitutional issues or something of that sort. Uh, in law school, though, I got uh, kind of... Um, I guess I would say what happens to a lot of lawyers at, at top law schools, I got uh, focused on the lure of money uh, because I had these opportunities coming out of law school to go work at big corporate law firms where I would make a ton of money, uh, although I wouldn't have a very fulfilling life. So I did that for a while, and then, and then luckily I've gotten out of that. And now for the last uh, seven or eight years, I've been focused on intellectual property law and very entrepreneurial settings. So that's that's the arc of my career. Uh, on a personal level, I am married with a three-and-a-half-year-old daughter who is uh, wonderful and part of you know, part of the most important part of my reason for being, but also, as you can imagine, if you're a parent, a three and a half year old can be tough at times. So, um, but that's, that's what I do. I have a couple of dogs. Um, I uh, brew beer on the side, although candidly, I haven't been doing that much lately because I'm also trying to get a little <laughs> bit more fit and beer is not exactly a great contributor to that. Mm, what's your favorite beer to brew? Uh, I brew a, a German style alt beer, which is uh, a style that most people don't know. Uh, it's uh, copper ale that's uh, got a good mix of a, a kind of a 
good malty backbone, but also a little bit of bitterness to balance it out. But it's uh, definitely my favorite. Mm. Well, you just said something that makes me realize why I haven't looked into that one. You said bitter. I don't like the bitter ones. (laughs) (laughs) I like the nice, smooth stouts and porters. So, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Well, before we jump into more about your business, I'd like to know a little bit about how you made that shift from being in corporate to getting more involved with entrepreneurs. What really led you to take your focus, as you said a little earlier, off of money and really start digging into a niche that really spoke to you? Well, so what happened was when I was at those corporate law firms, the first was one of the biggest in the country. It's probably one of the 10 biggest firms with thousands of lawyers. I then went to a smaller firm here in Washington, D.C., but still did the same kind of work where it was largely one corporation fighting another about money for one sort or the other. Um, and while I was doing that, I had, I seemed to be chafing against the jobs. At the time, I thought it was about a lack of responsibility. Like I wanted to be, you know, doing this task and that task and actually building my skill set. Um, you know, looking back now, I realized that a big part of it was actually a, a lack of kind of overall control of my life and control of my practice and, and a sense of ownership of what I was involved in. So it was a lack of entrepreneurial abilities. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a more pressing problem, which was that the firm I was at, um, the smaller firm, it was a wonderful place when I, you know, well, it was a wonderful place the whole time. When I started there, it was a firm that had a reputation for giving more experience to young lawyers than the big traditional firms did, uh, partly because everyone there was, you know, had good pedigrees, et cetera. So they said, Hey, we're only going to bring people in that we think can do the work. Um, the problem was as I was there, they got so successful that the cases they were handling got bigger and bigger and bigger. And if you think about it, you're a big corporation and you're the lawyer who's in charge of their, uh, their matters and you have a $150 million lawsuit, you don't want anyone standing up in court unless they've already stood up in court. Mm. So it became a bit of a problem, a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I did a transition at that point that will seem completely out of the blue or completely strange to most people, but it's kind of common for lawyers at these big corporate firms to do. I went and became a federal prosecutor, putting people in jail for violating federal law. Mm Mm-hmm. And the reason was that that is one of the few jobs where you actually – it's not Perry Mason, but you actually do stand up in court on a regular basis, uh, trying cases to jury, arguing before judges, et cetera. So you get that experience. So I did that for three years. I uh, actually went back to Texas. I was in Fort Worth um, doing that, which was a great experience, uh, great people there, and I loved it. But I knew pretty quickly it wasn't my forever job. And so I was trying to figure out what to do next uh, after about three years. And my wife and I decided we wanted to come back to D.C. And I, I reached out to the firm I'd been at before. They gave me an offer. But at the same time, I said, you know, let me look around at what else is going on. And for the life of me, I don't even remember what I typed into Google. But I typed some searches <laughs> into Google and just started looking around. And I found this little law firm with two lawyers who the firm was doing the kinds of work uh, that a lot of big firms were doing. They tended to be on the plaintiff side because that was what they did. But, uh, you know, it was just this opportunity that seemed to be much more exciting because I was going to be in control of building my own practice. That Mm -hmm. was the thinking at the time. I literally sent them an email out of the blue 
luckily, I was able to look through kind of my LinkedIn and other connections and figure out that someone I knew had gone to law school with one of the two. So I was able to get a sense of, hey, are these good people or not? And, and got good reports. And they brought me in and they were crazy enough to say, yeah, we'd love to have you come work <laughs> for us. And I said, hmm, you know, sure. And I went there without at a point where they didn't have uh, steady cash flow. And so theoretically, I had a salary, but I was only going to get paid when the firm had money. So it was a very risky endeavor. Um, that was before my daughter was born, so I, I felt like we could take a risk. Um, and, and I joined the firm, and, and I got to be honest, I didn't join the firm because I wanted to do a particular area of law. They were doing some cases in competition law and antitrust. That was what their background was. But they had this little patent infringement lawsuit that had come to them through a strange way that got going right after I joined the firm. Mm-hmm. And so I had no real experience in antitrust, which they were doing, and had some cases in. So they handed me this patent case and said, hey, why don't you run with this? And I did, and I fell in love immediately. I was just in love with the ideas, with the the rigor, with having to look at these issues and understand you know, what was going on. And what started as a love for patent law then ultimately expanded out to generally enjoying intellectual property and thinking about those issues Etc. And then over time, I expanded from doing mainly lawsuits and disputes to thinking about, hey, I'd like to help people avoid those in the first place. And so how can I help uh, people come up with the plans they need and come up with the strategies they need before it's a problem? Uh, and then uh, again, as you know, your audience will know, at some level, you have to start to kind of uh, – not to kind of – you have to start to niche down and, and go – more and more specific so that you are talking to a very particular group of people. Mm-hmm. And so I did that and said, well, I want to work with entrepreneurs. And even then within that, I, I said, but not just any entrepreneurs. What I really want to do is work with online entrepreneurs who are building their platforms, making their money on platforms, because that's what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And, and I want to help them solve their intellectual property problems and get themselves in the right position. So that's what brought me from the beginning to where I am now. Well, let's talk a little bit about what is intellectual property as it relates to a coach, an entrepreneur, small business owner. What sort of intellectual property do you usually deal with when you're working with entrepreneurs? Yeah, well, let, let me start by giving just a broad definition of intellectual property that uh, uh, stodgy lawyers would cringe at because it's not really a, a proper one. But I, I say intellectual property is Anything you can own that you can't hold in your hand and isn't a piece of dirt. So just about <laughs> anything else. If it's intangible in some way, shape, or form, and you can own it, it's intellectual property. Um, but to get a bit more specific, there are really four major kinds and one kind of minor kind of intellectual property. Uh, I, I mentioned one already, which is patents. That That is one that almost everyone knows about. It's expensive. It gets way too much attention, in my view, especially for online entrepreneurs. If you're a product business, it can be a very important uh, part of your arsenal, but for most coaches, online entrepreneurs, you know you're not going to patent something. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, it, it, but it is something that's out there that you have to consider. The second area you mentioned earlier, which is copyrights. Well, copyrights, a lot of people think of it uh, in terms of movies, books. Uh, music again. If you watch any DVD or Blu-ray, you're of course going to see the FBI warning. Well, but it applies more broadly than that. Any creative work that you put into fixed form is copyrighted. So if you have a website, your web copy is copyrighted. If you have lead magnets, those will get copyright protection. Anything that you put together that's more than just a rote compilation of data, you get protection for. Uh, 
So that's copyrights. It's automatic, but you can also register them to get additional protections. The next area is trademarks. Again, most coaches, most entrepreneurs will inherently know about this, but they may not be thinking about it. Trademarks have to do with branding. It's anything that identifies the source of a good or service. Uh, and by source here, we're talking about the company or person providing it. So let me use the company Nike as an example to give you a bunch of different examples. The name Nike is, of course, a trademarked trade name. Then you have the, the checkmark swoosh. That is a logo, also a trademark. And then let's go one level deeper. Just do it. A slogan, again, something that is trademarked because all of those will tell you this product comes from this company that we call Nike. And that's an area that's very important for coaches, everything. As you're building a brand, obviously having protection for that brand is hugely important because that becomes your calling card. Mm -hmm. the, the final big area is trade secrets. And this is, I, I like to refer to as the Rodney Dangerfield of intellectual property because it don't get no respect. And again, <laughs> using that reference is going to age me for the, for the youngins out here <laughs> you know, who may not uh, recognize that. But, you know, trade secrets don't get a lot of attention. But quite honestly, for most entrepreneurs, especially online entrepreneurs, coaches, et cetera, it's probably the most important area. Um, and the reason why is that this is a way that you can keep your confidential information confidential and prevent someone else who learns it legitimately from then using it to compete with you, et cetera. So think it's a way to prevent your employees from taking the information that they learn while working for you and then going and using that information to compete with you. Same mm -hmm. thing if you have vendors, if you have customers, et cetera. So you, you do that through setting up reasonable confidenti confidentiality requirements and provisions. Uh, you know, it can start with the very basic. I mean, if you have a phone, you need to have it password protected. If you have physical documents and other people in your office, you don't, you, those documents need to not be just sitting around. Um, but then with employees, it's about having confidentiality agreements with them. Mm -hmm. And so that's trade secrets, again, a hugely important area. The last area is kind of the small area. It's the right to publicity. We all theoretically have the right to control our the use of our name and likeness. So again, someone can't use my name, Bobby Clank, to market their business without getting my permission. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not going to say no for the most part because, of course, hey, somebody wants to use my name. That's probably just going to make uh, give more exposure to me. It really comes up in the case of celebrities or, you know, more important entrepreneurs who've become kind of cult status could use it in a sense. The classic case of this that I can think of was, and I'm pretty sure it was Dwayne Reed, but it was a drugstore chain. Someone had snapped a picture of a famous actress. Again, I think it was Catherine Heigl walking out of the store with a bag that clearly showed their logo. So you could see their logo and associated with this celebrity. And I think Dwayne Reed or the company, whoever it was, started using that. I, I don't know if they were retweeting it, putting it on Instagram, but they were putting it out there. Mm -hmm. And that's not allowed because they had not paid Catherine Heigl for the right to use her likeness to sell their business. So that's a quick breakdown of the different areas of intellectual property that are relevant to uh, entrepreneurs. Well, I'd like to, I don't know, dig into some of those because I know that a lot of the listeners are probably like, oh, I think I've got this. I might have this. This probably has something to do with me. And maybe just dig into a few of those and 
talk about how coaches need to, number one, how we can kind of get started on our own, maybe some of the things that if people are just getting started that they can do to protect themselves, and then also talking about once there is some revenue coming in, what sort of a plan should entrepreneurs put together to, to maybe have someone who has more experience be able to help them out. Okay. Well, so, so again, what I would say is the most important step uh, for an entrepreneur or for anyone else in this area is quite honestly just to be thinking about it and doing something about it. Mm-hmm. Because way too many entrepreneurs just don't take any time to think about it. They don't have a plan. They don't uh, even spend any time strategizing about this. And, and, and that's a it, really a travesty. Uh, especially for uh, your listeners and for people who are building online businesses with platforms, quite honestly, 90 to 95% of the value of your, of your company is your intellectual property. I know that's the case mm-hmm. with me. Uh, right. you know, yeah, I guess my know-how and my abilities have something to do with it, but you know, my name, my, my lead magnets, my SEO, you know, all of those mm-hmm. things that I've built up are all intangible assets that I've built up over time. And so you just need to be thinking about it and creating a plan for it. Mm-hmm. And part of that is just educating yourself, right? It, understanding what the different areas are and understanding what you can and can't protect, but also what you need to avoid, you know, what you need to do to avoid stepping on a landmine where you could get sued and, and mm-hmm. have to spend six figures. So that's the most important step. And again, you can do that by all kinds of things, going out and getting information. You know, I've got a book, the Entrepreneur's IP Planning Playbook that people can download for free on my website. Starts getting you thinking about it. But that's the idea. Just start thinking about it. Start learning about these areas. And one of the most or one of the issues that I see is people will treat this in an ad hoc basis. They'll just say, Ooh, I should I should protect this. I should do X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. And they'll do that. Well, if you're like most businesses, you have a limited budget and you have a limited budget, especially for intellectual property. So you need to figure out, well, and again, let's say you have $1,000 to spend. I have $1,000 to spend. Where should I spend that to get the most bang for my buck? So that's an important part of getting this right is just doing that kind of a triage where you figure out where you should spend your money. Mm-hmm. So, so that's the steps I would say again, but just go start understanding these concepts, understand what copyright is, what can be tri- protected, what you have to do to get it uh, registered. If you want to do that and, and taking those steps will get you most of the way. Now, at some point you get big and it's not worth your time to do it yourself and you're going to want to pay someone else to do it. That's when you want to start working with a lawyer. Uh, again, to, to give you a sense of what I do, I, I don't do a lot of this execution work for people. I'm not going to file a trademark for you. I'm not going to file a copyright registration for you because I'd charge you too much. Mm-hmm. My, my time, <laughs> I charge much more than people can get these services for at this point. So, uh, you know, you will, I will often work with people who are on a tighter budget and I'll say, look, let's go to one of these companies where, you know, we can get, you know, you're going to pay them a hundred bucks plus the the fee to the government to get a, a trademark mm-hmm. filing done. So let's just do that. But we do that after we figure out what they ought to be trademarking, what they shouldn't be trademarking. So that's kind of how I think the the next step uh, on a planning purpose, at some point you may get to the point that you just want to outsource it all and say, Hey, I want you to take care of this. I don't want to, have to think about it. Here's the money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you may get there, but you know, let, let's hope you're to that point because that means you've got a very successful business. Right. So for somebody that's just getting started, what would be like the first thing that they should consider 
investing in? Because I know that with a lot of things, you know, copyrights, for example, and I think trademarks too, and obviously correct me if I'm wrong, but some of this stuff sort of has an inherent copyright already. Like you don't really have to do anything to be afforded the protection. And I think a lot of times people just assume, oh, okay, well, I'm using it, therefore I'm protected, so I don't have to do anything. Yeah, well, and that's that's somewhat right, okay? So a copyright, you get copyright protection the moment you put something in fixed form. There are limitations. If you ever want to sue someone for infringing, you have to register it. Um, and if you register it before someone is infringing, which means they're actually taking it and using it against your will, or within a certain period after you first put it in fixed form – you can you have some advantages in a lawsuit. You can collect some statutory damages, which means you don't actually have to prove your harm. You just, you know, you can get some automatic rights. But the fact is that, you know, we always hope we're not gonna have to get there, right? I mean, but mm-hmm. so so and there's a cost involved. So I have uh registered copyrights on my books because I it was part of the process of the company that I worked with. I think I could pay, I don't remember if it was 100 bucks, but whatever it was, and they would do the work of actually getting the registered copyrights for them. So I did that. But other than that, I just to be honest with you, I don't have any registered copyrights on any of my lead magnets, on any of that stuff. It's just not worth the time mm-hmm. or the money. So for copyrights, you're probably right. Trademarks are, are also an interesting area. So you start to get what are called common law trademark rights as mm-hmm. soon as you start using a name, a brand, a logo in commerce, meaning as part of a business. Mm-hmm. You can get more protection by registering it. There are advantages of registering it with the federal registry because if you get it, you get nationwide protection rather than otherwise. If you think about it, there's probably – I don't know how many, let's say 500 Main Street cafes in the country because, you know, that's something that it's all geographic and, and, and that issue. But if you have a big enough brand, you know, and and you get a registered trademark, then no one else can use it within the USA, period. So that has value. Um, also at some point after you've registered, it can't be contested. So again, that has some value. Uh, there's fees involved, et cetera. The the bigger problem, though, that people make with trademarks is is not about whether they register it themselves. I think that's important. But the biggest mistake I see is that people spend all this time thinking about, hey, what's the perfect name for my business or for my product or whatever? And they'll do all this business work on it. And then they land on a name and don't do the legal work to make sure that no one else already has that name. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can hire a lawyer to do it, but quite honestly, you can go to the, the patent and trademark office website, search through the federal register, and then do things like go on Google and Google and see if anything close comes up. Go right. on a service like Namevine where you can see if the domain name and social media handles are available. And so you can do that and clear your name at the outset. And that is a hugely important step because if you don't, guess what? When you first start a podcast, let's say – you know, I, I I don't know. You can tell me. <laughs> you have a better <laughs> sense of this, but I'd imagine if I started it, my parents would listen, and my wife might listen sometimes. You know, but <laughs> and so if I do that when I'm first starting out and building up all of this brand equity, uh, a trademark holder is not going to know about me. Mm-hmm. They're going to hear about me eight months later when I've built this hugely successful business, and then they're going to write me a letter demanding that I stop using the name. 
and I'm mm. going to ha- lose all the equity I built up over time and have to start over. So that's why it's important to do that step at the outset. Again, if your listeners have already started name and haven't done it, I, the best time to do it would have been when you started. The second best time is today. So just do it as soon as you can and, and, and make sure there's not a problem. Well, let's unpack that just a little bit. What if you find a name for your business that you really love and let's say that the dot com isn't available, that somebody's just sort of squatting on it. They're not using it, but they're not going to let you have it either. How would you move forward with something like that? Well, so if the dot com's not available, but no one's using the name, you can you most likely won't have a trademark problem. OK, because they're not going to they're not using it in commerce, so they don't have a trademark. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can start using and build up trademark rights. You know, one innovative way to do this is start if you build up uh, a trademark and then let's say you get a federally registered trademark for the name. Mm-hmm. You know, then at that point, you might want to just you know write to the person and say, hey, just by the way, I have a federally registered trademark for this. So no one else is going to be able to use this domain. So you might want to sell it to me. Again, that's mm-hmm. a business issue. They might just say, you know, go pound sand. We don't want to do that. Right. Um, but a lot of people make a mistake of of confusing domain name and trademark, and they're different. So the fact that a, a domain name is available doesn't mean that it's not already taken from a trademark perspective. Right. And vice versa. So you just have to work those issues out. And, and again, you can often avoid the domain name issue. I mean, if someone is squatting on it, you know, by adding something to it to, um, to get yourself what you need. Again, it depends on how beautiful the name is, right? I mean, pets.com. Sure. I mean, that, it was going to be hard <laughs> to be better than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, from from a pet store perspective, but um, you know that's one of the things you just have to work that out. Really, as a business issue more than as an intellectual property issue. Well, going along with patents, what if there is someone that's using your name, but it's a completely different industry? So let's say, I mean, I'll just use mine as an example. I, this isn't the case, but if I say that I'm a podcast, what if someone else is using the same name, but they're in t-shirts? Well, so again, for for trademarks, it is so the touchstone issue. Uh, well, so let me back. So in a federally registered trademark, you have various categories and and classes. So you'll see where it's registered. So for example, uh, I at one point toyed around with opening a brewery because I love brewing beer, and so you can register that. And and I won't remember correctly if there's actually a, a brewing or if it's a little bit more generic than that. But there is a category for that. So if I only file under that, that's the only area where I have federal protection. Now, the problem comes in, if you think about it, if somebody else has the same name registered for clothing, well, then I can't sell clothing Mm -hmm. because I would be infringing their trademark. So that becomes a problem for you down the line if you want to branch out into the area. If they don't have a federally registered market, or even if they do, really the touchstone for infringement is whether consumers are likely to be confused about the source of a good or service. So if me using the name is likely to confuse a consumer to think, hey, these are the same company, then you have a problem. So what I would say is once you get into these gray areas, you may have a problem. You may not. You probably at that point have to make a hard decision either to talk to a lawyer if you really want to keep, you know, stay with that name. Or again, if you don't want to spend the money on a lawyer, maybe come up with a different name. I mean, Mm -hmm. I know that (laughs) that stinks to hear, but oftentimes, look, as much as we think things are perfect, 
you know, tweaking something is is not going to make or break our company unless we happen to have, you know, just landed on the perfect name. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think too many of us think we have when, when we probably haven't. Right. Yeah. So you may be OK if if you're going to have a travel agency and then someone has the same name and they're a software company. Those may be different enough that you aren't going to run into any problems. But then if there's going to be overlap, that may be more of an issue. Yeah. And again, the, the advice I often want to give to entrepreneurs starting out is, look, you can't afford to have an intellectual property problem down the road because mm. you don't want to spend $100,000, which, to be clear, if you find yourself in a lawsuit about intellectual property, really in any area, it's going to cost you $100,000. And I'm talking wow. – that's going to be fees to attorneys. Forget if you lose. I mean, if you lose, there's a bigger problem. So you just can't really afford that issue. I mean, there might be some, you know, tiny little nuisance cases where it's not that expensive, but that's the order of magnitude you're talking about. Okay. So that's why I often advise people, you just want to avoid a situation where you're likely to find yourself in that fight unless it's that important to you. Mm-hmm. So that's why I often give people the advice that if you haven't really gone to market with a name yet, if you have the possibility to change it a little bit so you get further away, that's probably the best bet. But if you don't, I mean, you, you don't necessarily lose. Again, the question is, are consumers likely to confuse uh, the brands based upon various factors? Right. I'd like to talk a little bit about trade secrets, because I think that's also something that coaches would run into a lot. And you had mentioned one aspect of it, which was, you know, if you have employees that have access to your products and services, and then perhaps they go out and try to do business with that information. So that's that's something that you would want to cover yourself by having Anyone sign a, a confidentiality agreement or, or how would you how do you work with employees or maybe even just VAs, you know, maybe people who aren't true employees? Well, so, so the best practice is to have a confidentiality or non-use clause, in a sense, in any agreement and have an agreement, a written agreement with whether it's a VA, if it's a contractor or it's an employee. And, and again, you could tweak the language however you want. But what I'd say is having anything in writing that's to this effect is better than nothing. But the essential point is you have an agreement that says you, employee or contractor, will not use any confidential information you learn while working for me for any purpose other than my business. So when you leave in my employment, you won't use it for any other purpose. And even while you're employed by me, you won't use it for any other purpose. Now, is that going to stop them from doing it? Not necessarily, but it at least gives you the legal protection if they do that you could potentially take action. So the mm. the, the classic example is get outside of the, the, the online coach world where I think many people have experienced this happening is let's say you have a lawn service or a maid service or something like that where it's some centralized company and then service providers providing you the service. Well, I've had it happen many times where those folks then leave the company they're working for, start their own business, and hey, they were the ones doing business. You know, they were the ones I was interacting with, and mm-hmm. they know how much I was paying. So they come and say, "Hey, I'll charge you ten bucks less." Right. And you want? And you're like, I'm like, sure. Well, you don't want your employees doing that. And people tried to use non competes that said you just can't compete with me at all, and and those tend not to be effective. 
Um, especially there are some states where literally it's just not going to do you any good, where judges mm-hmm. are going to say, no, we won't enforce that, period. Some states, there's all of these tests, but it's going to be hard if you're telling someone they can't continue to use their profession. Right. But you can say you can't use any of the confidential information you learned during my employment to compete with me. That is a legitimate thing to say because, look, that's your information. You own it. They don't. And so that's how you do it with those kinds of agreements. This question kind of comes from a couple of things that I've read in in Facebook groups, people having issues with putting together an online course that they then sell and then finding a few months later that there's someone who is pretty much using every bit of information that they had put out in their course with very tiny tweaks and, and presenting it as their own course that they're selling. Yeah, well, you probably have a copyright infringement there in most cases. You can't you can't change a couple of words here or there and, and avoid copyright infringement, um, you know, as kind of some famous cases have shown in a lot of ways. Uh, so, so that's one area that you potentially have. I also suggest, and I'm actually in the process of developing my own online, my own online course that's going to teach entrepreneurs about these legal issues and, and, you know, have most all information that they will need. I don't have a big concern because I don't think I have a lot of lawyers who are going to be taking the course and so that I'm not sure that someone would buy a competing course from a non-lawyer, but I will have in my terms of service and my agreement with them that they can't do that, that they mm-hmm. can't use the information they learn during the course to then teach other people and to offer a competing product. Again, will that, you know, the question will be, what will I do if I find someone who's doing it? Um, and that becomes a question that you have to decide whether it's worth spending the money to try to enforce. But mm-hmm. at least then I will have the ability or potentially have the ability to enforce it. Right. So let's talk a little bit. I mean, we've gone into a whole lot of information for coaches, and I'd like to know a little bit more about the course that you're creating, because that sounds like something that a lot of coaches would probably get a lot of use out of. So can we talk about that a little? Yeah. So I'm developing a course. It's going to be called Safeguard Your Online Genius. And it's really going to be directed, quite honestly, at your audience directly, at coaches, at people who are building a platform and then using that platform online to uh, make money. So it could be coaches. It could be anyone who does that. It could be authors. It could be anyone who's in that space. Uh, And so I'm focusing on the issues that those folks are most likely to face. Um, so there's gonna be a bunch of modules. The first one will be, I'm still, it's a working title, but it's something like everything you never wanted to know about intellectual property, but it'll kind of be be a little bit of a deeper (laughs) dive through the areas of intellectual property so that, you know, people can really understand things. Uh, I'm going to use a, you know, kind of fictional company, uh, example so that I can use kind of building examples through the course. Um, then we're going to walk through various areas. One of them is why you need written agreements and why it's hugely important to have written agreements and what agreements you need to have in writing and kind of walking through that. Um, people that take the course will also get template documents. So they'll get, uh, basic template documents and editable form for those agreements that they can then take and use for their business. Um, I'll then have a section on trademark. So again, it'll walk you through the process, uh, start to finish of how you would do the search if you want to do it yourself. And then also various resources if you want to pay someone to get a little bit more help on, on doing one of these searches, picking the right name, et cetera, how you go about that process for trademarking. Uh, we'll go into to issues related to having the right confidentiality procedures. What policies and procedures do you need in place for the 
the trade secret protection to make sure you do that. Uh, there will be a module about uh, how to avoid getting sued. Again, it'll address a lot of the common myths that I hear like, well, if I only play seven seconds of a song, that's not copyright infringement. And <laughs> those type of things and address those issues and what you need to yep. be doing to protect yourself. There will be a, a module that's specific to social media about what social media policies you need to have in place to avoid issues in social media because obviously, especially for coaches, that's a big issue. Uh, and it's an issue that's interesting and, and can be hard to kind of get through and understand what the implications are. Um, I think I'm blanking. <laughs> I think there's one more <laughs> module in it. Uh, but, you know, the point is, it's going to be covering what coaches, online entrepreneurs, et cetera, need to know about the process, about these issues. And then it will give them these template documents. Ah, I forgot. A terms of service section. There will be a mm -hmm. module about terms of service for your website. But if you're a coach offering a course, what are the types of things you should have in your course terms of service, et cetera. So all of that will be in there. And again, you'll get those template documents that you can use for your own business um, after you take the course. Uh, there will also be, um, at least when I launch and towards the outset, people who sign up will um, get access to, uh, and I haven't formalized exactly how often, but Q&A sessions that I'll have um, where they can come on. Again, I can't give legal advice to people over the phone, but I can talk and give them general advice about information, provide information about the types of things they need to be thinking about uh, to address these various issues. So th that's going to be the base course. There will be a, an upgraded course where people will also get some time with me to help kind of go through these issues and, and you know, uh, tailored advice to fill out all these uh, forms for their business. But the base course will be largely get the information, get the forms and these Q&A sessions. Mm -hmm. now, is this something you're going to be putting out this year? When is this coming? So I am uh, going to be putting it out this year. I'm uh, I'm uh, currently running a competition getting beta testers. I'm going to run a series of beta testers through it uh, starting in September. Uh, the reasoning being that uh, this is not going to be a cheap course, so I want to make sure that it's it's it won't be perfect. I know that, but I want to make sure that it's good and that it's addressing the questions that uh, entrepreneurs who aren't lawyers have. So that's going to be an intense process that I'll be working a little bit more one on one with the people in that, and you know, hopefully they'll they'll give me feedback and say, well, I really had this question and it wasn't addressed. I'm like, ah, oh, it's a good th that's a good thought. I hadn't thought about it, so I can then go back and uh, tweak the presentations and get all the information. The idea is that it'd be about six or seven weeks for someone to really get through it and really understand it fully if they kind of do a module a week once you mm -hmm. get beyond the basic. And so then I anticipate launching in late October uh, or early November is when it'll be uh, kind of launched to the public. Uh, and that uh, is that's my current time frame. So you said as you were going through the modules, you said one that I really hadn't given any thought to and i'd like to know if you could tell us just a little bit more about it and that was social media what's what on earth do you need to think about besides the obvious i mean to me the only obvious thing is using a picture that belongs to someone else well yeah so, so that's one of the most obvious is people you know where do you get your pictures from but so there was an interesting issue that came up recently um and a photographer wrote a post somewhere and getting the exact details is hard. But so from what I could tell, what happened was this photographer, uh, he, he, he took pictures of, um, certain, a certain class of skateboarders. I don't know. I think longboarders or some group of skateboarders. And he would let those skateboarders use these images for free on their social media if they wanted mm -hmm. to. Well, what was happening then was various of the companies who sponsored those riders would, 
grab that picture and not, I mean, not just retweet the tweet or not. And again, I don't know Instagram well enough, but not, you know, uh, repin or whatever it is with Instagram. <laughs> uh, they would actually take the image and do their own post. Mm. And so again, that was, that's raising a copyright issue because they don't have the right to do that. But so it's thinking about those issues. Some of it is an intellectual property. Some of it is thinking, you know, about just general things like you should have a policy in place for if you have someone else doing your, um, your posts for you mm-hmm. so that you limit what they can say. Obviously you don't want someone to have unlimited access, but also you better make sure that you, some of this is should be straightforward, but isn't if someone else is using, you know, doing the social media for you, make sure that it's still yours. Meaning I had a case where there was a, a realtor kind of a, a dispute between two partners in a realty program and or in a realty company. Well, the problem was like the, the, all of the social media was not set up by the actual owner, set up by the junior partner in his name. Mm-hmm. And so then when you're splitting it up, you're like, wait a minute, you know, there's an issue. So it's those types of issues, but there are a lot of weird issues on social media that you have to think about it because what are we doing? We're often taking images, taking music. Again, YouTube is the classic example. If you put up a video on YouTube and it's got copyrighted music in the background, uh, YouTube is likely to get a takedown notice mm-hmm. um, that requires them to take it down. So it's thinking through those things so you don't run into those problems. Right. Now, one last thing that I'd like to talk about, and you've mentioned you've mentioned it a little bit here and there, and I think that a lot of coaches would end up collaborating with other people, whether it's collaborating with other coaches or you know putting together maybe a membership site that had multiple people contributing things to it. What do entrepreneurs need to keep in mind when they're collaborating with others or even things like like we're doing today, you coming on my podcast and offering your expertise? When we get together with other people and create things, what do we need to think about with collaborations? Well, as a general matter, the the rule is get it in writing, get an agreement and get it in writing. Uh, There's a couple of reasons for that. One, federally protected intellectual property can only be transferred by a written agreement. So if I own a trademark, I can't say to you, oh, here, you can have it orally and give it to you. No, I have to do a written assignment of that. Same thing if I have a a copyright. Um, There are complicated rules on... So this is another issue where that I address in getting a written agreement like with your employees. As a general rule, if someone is creating a work for you as part of their job... It's going to be a work for hire and there are arguments where you get it. But you know what? You should just be safer and have a written agreement that says, hey, you're contributing this to the project, but I'm going to own mm-hmm. it. So again, that's what you need to have. And if it's it, it, it kind of two entrepreneurs working together, often it's almost a de facto partnership. So you need to have an agreement that says, here's how this is going to work. Here's what each person contributes. Here's what everyone gets. Here's what happens if it succeeds. Here's what happens if it fails. And so, you know, for example, uh, if, if, if multiple people are going to be contributing intellectual property to a venture, well, it actually needs to be contributed and done in writing. But you also probably want to have an agreement that says, hey, if we ever terminate this deal, I get mine back and you get yours back mm-hmm. um, so that you don't lose those rights. You know, honestly, I can't remember if you had me do this, but the best practice for you on podcasts would be have all your guests when they sign up, acknowledge that, you know, they're going to be recorded and they're giving you permission to use that information as you see fit. Mm -hmm. Again, just that way you have a written document that says, I gave you that permission. 
I think it's implied, right? <laughs> I mean, obviously, when I, I appear on your podcast, it's kind of implied that right. I want you to put this out. But again, it's a quick something that you can implement once, and once it's there, it just becomes part of the process and avoids any dispute about it later. Well, Bobby, this has really been good. I, honestly, I have learned more from you in the last 45 minutes than I have on my own, uh, muddling through branding and trademarks and patents, uh, what little bit I have, have put into it. I think that course is going to be just an awesome resource for entrepreneurs and coaches alike. And um, I would love it if you would get back in touch with me before that goes live, because I would I would love to let everyone know when it does. Okay. And we'll do the last thing I would really just like to know if you could let us know how to get in touch, how to find your your books, how to connect with you on social and your website. Okay. Yeah. So, so most all of my resources, the best way to, to get that information is on my website and that's clinkllc.com. So it's K-L-I-N-C-K-L-L-C.com. From there, you'll find all kinds of things. I have a blog where I regularly post uh, information and it's focused on startups, entrepreneurs, and, and really intellectual property issues for them. Sometimes I have some stuff that really has nothing to do with law. I might have a, a random thought about business. I might review a business book. Um, I might I haven't done this yet, but I'm thinking about putting up reviews of various uh, software um, and, and other tools I use. Because again, I view myself as an entrepreneur and if I could provide service, great. Uh, I also on my website have a, a section called the IP Academy. And that's where we have some resources about basic information about trademarks, patents, etc. Also about intellectual property planning and thinking through that process. There's also a tab with the books. Uh, from that tab, you can download my books for free if you'll give me your email address. If you'd rather pay for it, feel free. There's a link to Amazon where you can get them. Um, but I, I don't plan to make money selling books uh, about intellectual property law. That I don't think would be a good business plan. <laughs> uh, um, the, the course is going to have its own uh, URL. It's not live yet, but it's going to be Safeguard Your Genius. Uh, and that will be uh, live once the course is live. Uh, in the meantime, I do have a free e-course on the on five mistakes that entrepreneurs often make. Uh, and you can get that at clinkllc.com forward slash mistakes. It's an email course. You'll get various emails with um, kind of the outline the mistakes people make and what you need to be doing instead. Um, on social, I'm most active on Twitter. It's at Bobby Clink, and that's B-O-B-B-Y. Clink, K-L-I-N-C-K. Some of it's law. A lot of it's just platform building, uh, entrepreneurship, those types of things. Uh, I just enjoy. If I see something that I like, I, I put it out there for other people to see as well. Okay, great. Well, I will be sure to get all of those links as well as that link that you mentioned earlier about people registering to be a part of the beta test for your course. I'll get all of those links onto the show notes page. Bobby, thank you again so much for joining me today. This has been an amazing conversation. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for joining us on the Unstoppable Coach Podcast. From August the 10th to the 20th of 2017, I'm joining forces with business coach Kay Sanders from episode 28, along with over 25 other industry experts to help you kickstart your business success. Are you stuck in your business and wondering how to move forward? Go to unstoppablecoach.co slash kickstart to learn more. We've put together over 25 amazing resources, ebooks, e-courses, PDFs, reports, MP3s, tools, techniques, and strategies just for you. 
Learn how to profit from podcasting. That one's mine. How to grow your business without a big list. How to increase your vibration to increase your impact. The golden rule of wealth creation. And pitch to profit speakers toolkit, just to name a few. Choose one or all of these freebies. Go to unstoppablecoach.co slash kickstart for more information.